Good afternoon, and this is Nido Media reporting on Ohm Radio uh, for Hacker Public Radio. Uh, I'm Nido Media. Um, uh, on the other side is Cecile. She Hi. is a journalist and she's uh, uh, my co-host for today. Um, uh, on the left to me, I have uh, Chiabi from uh, Rizomatica. Yeah, correct. Hi. Welcome. And on the other side of the t- on the table, we have uh, Bicycle Mark. Oh, greetings. Hi. And he's a journalist and he's also a podcast uh, host for uh, the Citizen Reporter. That is correct. Okay. Um, we have two uh, separate uh, su- subjects to discuss, but uh, let's start, uh, Chabi. Let's start with you. Uh, you have a t-shirt and you have it for sale. Yeah, I'm selling t-shirt. And it t-shirt. comes from Mexico. Yeah, I'm selling t-shirt for my project, Rhythmatica. This t-shirt has actually been made in Mexico and brought here with a lot of effort. <laughs> and what do you want to know? Um, well, well t- tell us about uh, about the about project. Okay, um, Rhythmatica is a project that want to bring affordable communication to all the people in the world that don't have it, or if they have it, it's not affordable enough. It's in what we are doing now, practically in Mexico, we're basically building community mobile networks for the um, indigenous villages in Oaxaca, southern of Mexico. And is there a reason why it's in Oaxaca? Well, <laughs> yes, there are multiple reasons for that. The the first reason is the fact that the person who actually started the project lives in Oaxaca, and there is a very strong tradition of self-government of the communities themselves. So it's probably the best place to start this kind of project because we are already working with people that know how to manage themselves and they do it since thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And But they didn't have uh, possibilities for communication? Uh, are they uh, not uh, sort of uh, connected to the bigger infrastructures of Mexico? Or what's going on on the communication in Mexico, on that. well, Mexico cool. is complicated because the entire telecommunication market is kind of monopolized. So there is the biggest company, which is um, Telcel, which has more than seventy percent of the mobile market, which also means that they can do whatever they want in terms of coverage, and they tend to focus mostly on the densely populated areas. They don't care so much about rural areas, especially because they say that if your village is less than 5,000 people, they won't ever install a network there. So that's that's maybe also where your uh, both projects uh, uh, of Mark and Chabi uh, sort of um, touch. Uh, can I mean, not connected, but they are both in uh, difficult areas. One, uh, but they are also both sort of deep local. You both go into communities that are uh, uh, that have difficulties with uh, internal and external communication for different reasons. I think in Oaxaca it's because of the poverty, of uh, because they are really remote, uh, and and for that somewhat isolated. And Mark, you do these things in difficult areas because of uh, war, mainly. Indeed, I do. I mean, Xavi deserves a ton more credit and attention than I do, in my opinion. You should 
keep that in mind because uh, what I do is, I mean, as part of a collective, Small World News, uh, and, and sometimes on my own, uh, but hopefully always with SWN, we go to uh, not always conflict zones. It could be post-conflict zones. I prefer post-conflict zones because, uh, well, sometimes people can concentrate better. They're ready to, to learn uh, things. Uh, there's less uh, stress uh, outside. Uh, and sometimes uh, it's, a, it's a good time to, to develop uh, media and and skills in general. But um, the difference is, though, I mean, Javi is talking about a, a community development project that, that really stays and connects many, many people. I, I would love to give myself more credit than I deserve, but I teach uh, young reporters or p- people who don't know if they're going to be reporters. Some of them use uh, video editing skills, storytelling skills for other work, which I'm fine with. I love, you know, I always have that in mind. Uh, but... Um, my people are more, you know, handfuls, and I think you're dealing with a much larger cross-section of people uh, using the tools that you're setting up. Well, yeah. In our case, the, 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 the entire village, the entire community okay. is actually the user. But the idea is not only to build an infrastructure as a service, but build it more like a shared resource. So not only to give them possibility to communicate, but to also experiment on the idea that if you own your own infrastructure, you can use it for many different things which are not immediately obvious. So, for example, connecting to your point, what we are trying to think is merge the idea of having a community network and make it coexist and cooperate with the community radios that already exist in Oaxaca. So you can actually use an infrastructure as an additional mean of communication, which is not only one-to-one, but it can be used to, for example, one, one silly example we talked yesterday is the fact that you can send messages every day to everyone, including the latest news, the weather forecast, the the price of coffee, in that specific example. And, yeah, basically develop it also from a journalist's point of view. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed four years ago when at, uh, was it Har, we, we had a GSM network and, and we were sending messages. I mean, it was, uh, it reminds me of that sometimes, only... You know, you're talking about people's lives, and we are talking about four days of people's lives here at, at camp. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, um, Chavi, can you just uh, tell me tell me more of how you uh, de- how you developed the uh, the platform that uh, that that you developed and with how many people you're working. Uh, as I understand it, there's no uh, there's there's no specific sponsorship by uh, Fox IT or Microsoft uh-huh. or something. <laughs> okay, the the project at the moment is really really small. The people working full time on it and with their own money are actually two: me and my friend Peter. We have a couple of friends that are helping out. There is a lawyer who actually made the whole legal part possible. But yes, we didn't get any funding at all. The the first part of the project has been basically self-funded, as in I spent all the money I'd saved. <laughs> yeah, and yes, yesterday uh, when you uh, spoke in the in the double TP at the, the noisy square uh, about the project, you also mentioned a project that's in Indonesia, and that's similar. Or um, how should I see that? It's similar in the technical part. It's um, a working group of University of Berkeley. And there are some students or postdoc, I think, which are doing this project of developing rural um, mobile networks. And they have the first project in the island of Papua, Indonesia. Uh-huh. And you also exchange uh, what you're doing. You make it 
Yeah, as I we said, you're still developing all these uh, yeah, the yeah, platforms. Yeah, it, it's all work in progress. We don't have anything completely stable yet, but we met with them, and we're now doing a cooperation on actually building a common platform between the two projects, so we can then move forward and then do the job twice. Yeah, That's the thing, because we are so few and so far in between that it basically makes sense to just work together. Otherwise, we will probably not make it. Yeah, and you also st uh, spoke about the very strong uh, community sense of the people that you work with in uh, Oaxaca. Yes, the thing is... Like you told something um, in that small community that uh, people also take all kinds of uh, roles on them, like they have to do like one or two years police service or... Yes, yeah, it, it's a thing called Usos um, y Costumbres, and it's the tradition of the state of Oaxaca, and that basically comes even before the colonization It comes straight from the Maya and from all the population that were there before the um, Hispanic invasion. And the idea is every person in the village has specific roles that he needs to do during his life in the village. This is called uh, cargos, charges. So basically during your life you need to do some things which are, how you say it, um, mandatory for everyone. And then you can basically progress in the chain of command of the village. And the entire thing is managed by an assembly. The assembly is composed by all the people of the village. And every year they change the um, assignment. So you can be mayor for one year and then you can become the judge and then you can become the secretary or nothing. Yeah. And you also told something about the the the, uh, the, the culture of how they meet, how they talk about uh uh, what is important for their community. You talked about like meetings that uh, lasted 11 hours. Yes, in that's the quite Mexican common. climate. I mean... Yeah, mm. but that's quite common because the idea is that you don't go by majority, as in you don't vote. You try to get a, a decision which is a good compromise for everyone. I mean, it's based on consensus and not strictly numerical majority, mm -hmm. which means that sometimes even a small problem needs to be discussed with more than a thousand people in a room. Mm -hmm. sorry, hey, sorry it reminds me of Occupy but anyway <laughs> go ahead <laughs> I mean maybe not 11 hours but, but 3 or 4 and they had l much less experience and much greater yeah, egos probably <laughs> uh, yes um, uh, but uh, well uh, this, this is uh, so basically it's the GSM networks in areas where uh, big companies won't be uh, are, will not place them because uh, probably because of uh, monetary reasons but um, how are you able to do it yourself mm, what do you mean um, uh, how do you get uh, the ability to actually make the network uh, go what where do you get the, the 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 people who do the work where do you get the money the okay um, at the moment we are in a funny situation because the equipment we are using is not both. It has been landed to us by a company that produced it because we managed to convince them that we had a nice project and it would be nice to actually start a test installation and they were so happy about it they actually shipped it to us and said go use it, if you like it you buy it otherwise send it back. The equipment we are using at the moment is based on OpenBTS which is the same software which has been used I think at the CCC camp and here as well, or maybe I'm wrong, I'm not sure. Basically, there are two main platforms to do mm -hmm. GSM networks. Both are open source, 
which, uh, which is OpenBTS and OpenBSC. The current run network is running on OpenBTS, but we are exploring other alternatives because the main problem we have at the moment is not to scale up, but to actually reduce costs and scale down because the communities we're talking about, they go from 100 up to 1,000 people. So we're talking about very small villages with not so much money they can invest. So we need mm -hmm. to be able to reduce the ardor to the bare minimum and be able to sell to them without a huge cost. And what are the main difficulties you uh, encounter? Mm. Like in, in a, on a daily basis? <laughs> okay, there are the Apart technical from the hangovers of the mezcal, maybe. But, uh. That's not a problem. <laughs> okay, there are technical difficulties because I never worked with GSM before. It has always been a dream, but considering that you need a degree in telecommunication to actually do it professionally, for me it was a <laughs> test to see if I could actually do it, which means that you do mistakes every single day and you try and you try and you try again until it works. It's not working perfectly, but it's good enough. Then you have social problems, as in you are relating yourself with a community that works in a totally different way from your point of view. So there is a kind of culture difference that needs to be, I don't know, compensated. As in, you need to adapt to them and they have to adapt to you. Mm -hmm. I think Mark can probably explain it a bit more. I mean, it depends on where you work, but you always have to uh, yeah, fall into the way things work. So if you have a culture that's more closed uh, or more suspicious of some of the not just the project you're doing, but the, the values and, and, you know, who are you, what's behind it. I mean, you, you always have to deal with that. Uh, it could be political, it could be religious. Uh, you, you face that. Um, and then it's uh, gaining the trust, I suppose, of, of people who don't know you initially, but then I guess you meet the right people in that country who become your, your sort of spokespeople. Mark, in uh, which but, countries do you uh, work may, uh, mainly? Uh, in the last... Three years, it has been Afghanistan, uh, Turkey for Syrians, okay, uh, Republic of Georgia, and Kosovo uh, for me. But uh, my organization, Small World News, or the organization I'm a part of, has been working. We gave trainings, uh, so journalism and uh, basically storytelling training in uh, Morocco, Zimbabwe, uh, Egypt. It's been a busy few years. And Libya. And Libya, of course, Libya. You can't forget Libya. Zimbabwe is interesting. Uh, yeah, it, it is. Uh, I didn't get to go on that one. Uh, uh, but I, I do get to hear the, the stories and, and see some of the results. And um, There are some pretty media-wise uh, Zimbabweans who had... Uh, I yes. mean, they had these sites, Sokwanele, and uh, uh, made also quite funny jokes, really, with their own information. They have a funny sense of humor. Yeah, well, the, the training was actually held outside of Zimbabwe, yeah. uh, on the, yeah. over the border in... Um, Fill in the blank. I can't, I can't remember. Um, Down but, or up? Uh, over. Uh, <laughs> to the left. Uh, why can't I think of... Well, anyway. Um, but that tells you something, of course, about the, cl the climate in, um, in Zimbabwe, where, you know, even the opposition is now not the opposition. You know, it's part of the sort mm -hmm. of the governing thing. And so there's a new opposition, and they don't feel so safe to do uh, any kind of media training. And that kind of goes back into... Uh, the, what gets in the way when you're trying to do a project. Uh, if, if a government doesn't trust you or people don't feel free 
to to even learn uh, something uh, taught by outsiders, then then you've got to deal with that, and maybe you have to move do it somewhere else. Oaxaca is particularly interesting place because it always seems to me, never having been there, as a place of people who are very independent and very uh, they don't just fall in line. Uh, you know, with what the Mexican government says, or, or, or whoever, no, absolutely quite independent, not. yeah. Um, and and you know, you have to deal with uh, bureaucracy, uh, and a bureaucracy in a country, in your case, that you, you weren't born in. I mean, you have to you have to become kind of a a legal expert in, in some ways if you're. Well, the good <laughs> thing is we had the Mexican lawyer who helped out with the whole thing, and that's why we were probably the, the first. Non-profit organization who got GSM licenses assigned, <laughs> which is kind of funny because, I mean, the GSM spectrum worldwide, it's basically saturated. And there is no country in Europe which can give you even a tiny split of the spectrum. And if they give it to you, they will sell it for hundreds of millions. We yeah. got a lot for free, and we could probably get it forever as if we can manage to demonstrate that the model works and the government is happy with what we're doing. So we basically have now two years of experimental license to push the project forward as much as possible. So we can then show that, yes, it's working now, converted from an experimental license to a permanent one, and then we're done. I don't know if this is a question you can answer, but I wanted to put it out there anyway. In such a situation, um, if Oaxaca ever has a large protest movement of any kind, uh, which the government doesn't like, do they have the power to, I suppose, yes, to shut down uh, that that GSM network just as they would, you know, in cooperation with a, a corporate one? Well, if they send the tough guys, yes. Mm -hmm. But in general, um, we are not officially a public network, so they cannot ask the same thing that they can ask to a network operator. Of course, they, I mean, it's Mexico. But there's some, okay, there's some autonomy there. There's some... Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the the nice thing about Oaxaca is the fact that since the um, the huge revolt in 2006 and the fact that they basically took the city for six months and the entire movement was pushed by radio and telecommunication means. At one point, they even took um, they even managed to get their hands on the TV channel and for one month they only made their own programs mm -hmm. and only women were allowed. <laughs> Oh. So there is a strong tradition of organizing themselves. That's why the project works for us, because they already know how you can do that, and it has been proven many times. Mm. Trying to export this model outside, we don't know yet. But you also talked about uh, that there's other places like Honduras and uh, uh, Colombia or something. You mentioned other South or Central American countries where uh, there is sort of... An, your, your group or is looking at it to maybe also expand we, these kind of projects? We have been contacted by people in Latin America, yes, yeah. because they have the same reality, as in small rural areas which are mm -hmm. not covered and where the main companies don't give a shit, basically. Mm -hmm. thing is we are not enough people. We don't have any resource at the moment. So we're looking at it as a possible future expansion. But then again, each place is... Yeah. as its own story and you cannot export a model because that model will change over time yeah hey and do you maybe have a site or somewhere where, where people can find out uh, if they would like to uh, support the project financially yeah of course the website is um, www.rizomatica.org 
Spell it just in case. Yeah. R H I Z O M A T I C A dot org. Yeah. Yeah, that um Oh, never mind. That's <laughs> one of those tricky things of, you know, when when a project works in a certain place and maybe you yourself or maybe people around you say, "Ah, you should do this here or there in another place." And uh, sometimes it, yeah, of course it would be nice if it worked and 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 you could and you had the resources and and sometimes you I don't know, you don't want to overstretch yourself either. I mean, I I find uh I I listed several countries uh, where I've worked in the last three or four years. I wonder what I could have done uh, or how much better I could have done if I had focused only on one. You know, how many more people I could have reached. So it's a, it's a, it's a choice. And it's is, this, is this also something you talk uh, talk about with uh, Brian Conley of uh, yeah, because that that sort of he started to make these small films or uh, in or have the with journalists in Baghdad to have right. these films and so on. But he also um, broadened uh, his project Alive in Baghdad to a lot of other countries. Yeah, it's it's a hard conversation to have, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, and Brian's not going to hear this, so ha ha. ha, ha. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but you know, and he never comes to hacker camps, which is which is the biggest mistake you can make uh, in life. People don't forget, we also have the syndication Hacker Public Radio, right? <laughs> no, I, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> Doesn't exist. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So he may hear this, and I, I would have no problem with that. I wish he was here. But so uh, Brian is, of course, the founder, one of the co-founders of Small World News, and in, indeed, it started in in Iraq in in 2003 with the idea that you know uh, a country was being bombed again and about to be invaded and you know what if people there could tell their own stories could tell you not just about how they don't want to be bombed that that would probably be quite easy but about um about what it's like to run a liquor store what it's like to be a border guard what it's like to run the the train service that was a really simple but but insightful uh series and the, the, I think the problem became, the idea was just like with, I think, Chavi's project, you teach people and then they do it themselves. We don't want to make ourselves, you know, we do get paid to go because uh, we need to survive. But the idea is not to milk a country, you know, later on. It's, it's teach what we can, go away and let people go, take it from there. Of mm-hmm. course, you know, teach a person to fish and then they'll, mm-hmm. they'll fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I love butchering good, good sayings. <laughs> but so um, Iraq, of course, in 2003 and in the aftermath of the war, I mean, we know pallets of money were flying in. And when it comes to projects that actually helped people, not that money that was on the pallets, I don't know who that helped. But um, you could. You could do something and you would have resources to back you. Now, that doesn't mean they were from the American government, but they could have been from the State Department. Uh, but they could have also been from a press uh, NGO, as there are many. Um, what happens, of course, is that after a conflict, and the years that follow, uh, interest dwindles. And then money dries up. So then if you want to do a project in that country and you need resources, you need money, basically, if you don't have any support, I, that's very difficult. That's more than difficult. It may be you know, close to impossible, but never impossible. Of course, we're at hacker camp. Yeah. So what well, ends up happening is Afghanistan becomes a, a, an interesting place, not only because you know they need all the help they can get, but also because there was goodwill there was interest on the part of organizations in the u.s and in, in europe 
uh, to teach people, to teach skills, and, and to invest in that. And then what's happened in the last five years is that, of course, no one wants Afghanistan anymore, not the militaries, not the organizations. So there's a big drop in, in interest, and, and, and you see it. I mean, even journalists are, you know, you're not getting much support from your newspaper or wherever you work if you well, still want to focus on Afghanistan. I think it's, it's uh, the same sort of uh, story goes up for Iraq. Yeah, uh, and with all the the, the, the well, the, I call, I'm, I'm really I'm studying studying again to call it the meat machine, Iraq, because it's it's it started up again, mm. and there is not much attention for it, and there no. is even less uh, idea of how uh, things could better. Yeah, yeah, and, and this is a problem, and and so, I mean, this is also something for for us to to discuss, but um, interest moves, and the question is. Uh, do, do, what are you going to do about it as someone that wants to do good in the world that's concerned about people that aren't being reached that are the most vulnerable that are currently living in you know hell or the equivalent of um, in the case of small world news uh, and I can't speak for the organization but I can speak for me um, there is attention to okay we want to help people but where could we possibly get funding to, to, to be able to do that help and so sometimes you'll notice I mean Libya it's no coincidence that in the last two to three years, we've tried and we've succeeded in some cases to do projects in Libya because there was interest. Um, now, this is not necessarily a good thing because, of course, you see the downside, right? I would love to go back to Afghanistan. I wish I could teach more there. Maybe there is still a way, but I also see the difference between 2013, you want to do a project in Afghanistan, and 2009, you want to do, or 2008, or even before. Um, it's, it's so much harder, and you're, you're, you're dealing with so much less support. Um, so this isn't a good thing, but is this that, is a reality. Does this also have something to do with, uh, like, the, really, the citizen reporting sort of started with uh, with the Iraq war? And there, it really got a big boost. Uh, uh, blogs were very important. Yes. Uh, the the well, the citizen reporting really. Every blogger, journalist, the whole discussions about that. Uh, can you trust it more? But now you see that there that it's that it's weakening, and and are we also not living in an information disaster? Is that <laughs> I mean, it's true. The war in Iraq was uh, a sort of a very interesting time for, for to be a blogger. I mean, we, we read Riot in the Middle, and we, we read a lot of great writing that was coming from Iraq in either English or Arabic. Um, mm. But I don't know, because what I'm talking about is more this whole, in a way, it's a bad spiral of funding for projects. And of course, a lot of times you're talking about big organizations who want big money, but I'm also talking about small projects that don't need that much money to do good, but still need, need something. So that's where it's interesting, you know, Chavi's here, and, and we started by talking about a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> and, and of course, you know, the real reason we talk about that t-shirt is also because I think that you're seeking funds in different ways. Uh, to, maybe to avoid the exact problem I'm talking about, where if you're looking to governments and big organizations, their attention moves too much, perhaps. Yeah, the idea is that we really don't want any big funding. And the actual business model of the project is it should be self-sustainable. So, of course, the first year is trying, testing. So you're just experimenting. You cannot ask people to pay you for a job that you're not even doing properly. <laughs> so the first six months in the network, we basically did the job for free because they were doing the the test for us. I mean, they were actually testing on a live system if the system could work or not, and we were working on it at the same time. So let's say that the quality of service was not great, but we both learned 
how to deal with it. When I'm going back, we should start to consider it as a production system, so they will pay us a small fee to keep it running. And with that fee and two, three networks more, we should be able to survive. I mean, we're not here to make money. We are no profit, so every money that comes in, which is more than my salary and Peter's salary, will be reinvested in the architecture itself. But, yeah, the point is we don't want to become another organization, NGO, whatever, which spend most of its time seeking funds. And most of the time, you don't even have a project. You first look for money, and then you look for something to do, while yeah. we're trying to do the other way around. We have a target. We have a purpose. Money is just a detail. I mean, point is, we're not going to stop anyway. If we don't have money now, we can wait another six months and then continue. Mm. We are not in a rush. Yeah. And we live in a very low-cost country. So Yeah, but it's also of interest when, when, you, when you're going somewhere where it doesn't mm. cost that much to get there or to, or to function when you're there. Yeah, that's yeah. particularly good. I mean, yeah. I, I've also done projects, I should say, I'm here talking about big funding. On my own, I do projects as a journalist which are, have been crowdfunded, you know, and that's, I'm sure, something that comes to mind for anybody. Uh, and here at camp, we have plenty of crowdfunded projects. You see them, the evidence of the, the results. Um, so I've also used that as a method to fund uh, not so much teaching, but, but going and doing reporting that's directly crowdfunded mm -hmm. from, from an audience that is either curious in the, of the topic or who already knows my work and says, mm -hmm. I, I, I want to see what, what Bicycle Mark would do if he went to you yeah. know, wherever he's going. So, of course, that's, that's another question for, for funding sources. Well, <laughs> yes. Um, Bicycle Mark, you've, had, uh, you've worked at uh, quite a few different places now. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about differences between, uh, between those places? How it's different to, uh, to teach an Iraqi person versus an, uh, an Afghanistan person? Um, well, I mean, I'd rather tell you about the similarities because one similarity that comes to mind is, is war trauma. You know, you're in a classroom and you're trying to teach people something that, uh, maybe they've never done before. And normally that's mm -hmm. already a challenge. People learn at different paces. Yes. But sometimes you see that people are dealing with a lot of other issues. And so you've got people that are looking at you and you think that they're thinking of your notes or whatever it is that you're writing, and, but they're thinking about someone that is uh, suffering, that has perhaps died, uh, something that went and happened this morning, uh, and it's very hard to iso isolate the classroom from what's going on outside. Uh, and and I, I've never uh, actually taught in Iraq. That was the, the organization that did that before my time, but um, I've seen this in Afghanistan, and I've seen this now with Syrians. Of course, if you want to start listing differences, uh, you know, there, there's the man-woman thing. Sometimes that's a, it's always been a complicated issue for me where you have classrooms, uh, especially in Afghanistan, where there are very few women. And the women that are there are not always treated uh, as equals. They are, they're not treated badly. Well, that's okay. Maybe they are. They're, they're, they're somewhat ignored, which I would probably put to being treated badly. Um, and that's odd, you know, because uh, you're trying to teach them as equals and uh, half of their classmates are ignoring them. And they themselves sometimes play down their role. Mm -hmm. No, don't help me. Go help him. Mm -hmm. No, no, I don't really need anything. And you know they do need mm -hmm. some, you know, they need some attention, some hands-on right there. Um, so for me, it's often been this kind of cultural difference uh, that makes l teaching very difficult. Um, and uh, yeah. So, Do you also have uh, women in your own organization to sort of challenge that? 
not actively doing teaching right now. Um, in the past, we've had people working for us, uh, females, but uh, at the moment, we don't have any trainers uh, that I know of. Because then, of course, you would work with other role models in, in these situations, and that would uh, also complicate things, but it would also be good for uh, women that won would want to learn things. Yeah. Because, you know, the Afghanistan, of course, has since a long time already these stories about uh, illegal schools for girls. Yeah, well, now uh, legal, legal, very legal. I mean, Yeah, but, yeah. but oh, time yeah. ago, yeah. you know, yeah. before before yeah. the last decade started. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. um, yeah. I, I don't know because I, I've, you know, I, I fell into this. So uh, that is a question. I think that there has been an attempt and, and these attempts have failed and, and maybe we should try harder. Um, the other question is, yeah, how much, I don't know. Is it not tempting to work with us for some reason for females? I have no idea. Mm. Um, it's definitely worth, worth finding out. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> good. Uh, and then, you no. know, differences go on and on. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I would rather answer more specific questions about uh, differences, but because uh, in general, it's just too much. <laughs> yeah, I, th I also can imagine that in the Syrian uh, chaos, uh, I mean, nobody really seems to understand anymore what's going on. Uh, everything is worsening. Uh, yeah, and, and the Syrian thing is complicated above all because the people that we teach are... From the start, they're with the rebels, okay? That's, and I have no problem with that, except that they're, you know, they're, they're not uh, that old idea of a journalist that has no affiliation or, or, or some kind of, some kind of uh, uh, independence. Um, they, you know, you, they have to be, I, I, I think they have to, be against the, the people that are bombing them. Mm -hmm. And so it's the government that's bombing them. Mm -hmm. So although they're journalists, they're reporters, but they are with an army. Mm -hmm. um, they don't pick up guns, but they go with them. Mm -hmm. And they trust, to some extent, they trust them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you and know, that, the army changed. In, in a way, it depends on where you are in the in the country, and it depends. Yes, mm. yes, yeah. So they don't agree with everybody that's mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. that army that they're mm -hmm. with. Uh, the, not the army, but the, with the rebels. Mm -hmm. I want to say the rebels. Yeah. Um, so this is not unique, but it's special to the Syrian case because you're talking to journalists, but you're talking to journalists who are almost affiliated with with the military. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Is that is that good or bad? It affects how they do their job. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you talk about interviewing and you say, oh, well, why don't you ask, you know, the general so-and-so of the rebels about uh, this event that happened? They'll say, well, you can't ask a you can't ask our generals that, you know, they really respect these sort of rules of he's too high up for me to mm -hmm. ask that. He'll mm -hmm. get mad. I'm not going to do that. And I think that partially comes with when you really support a certain side, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and when you're just scared, that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. just scared to be shut out, to be hurt. Yeah. You know, that, that happened a lot. Uh, you would, you could see footage of students of something that the rebels did that perhaps the rebels don't want published. And students would say, look, I'm showing you this, but you can't show anyone because I got to go home and they're there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, this is really complicated. Mm -hmm. This is really difficult. Uh, so are you also talking about how to uh, make um, uh, footage like that, that could also um, make the dangers for the persons involved bigger? Uh, are you talking about how you could sort of uh, make this, um, this, kind of, this kind of footage less uh, dangerous, like, like take out the, the very clear, recognizable parts or whatever, and, but, but that the, 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 the real... Um, 
note of the footage remains? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you try and teach, and they're interested, of course. Once you get them out of their shells, they're interested in, in taking some risks. You know, you see, uh, I tried to show a little here, footage of uh, hidden camera video mm -hmm. taken in a community or in a city where it's run by the government, and they're not supposed to be, no one is supposed to be uh, running around with a camera. And you'll see them, uh, uh, it's terrible quality video, and it's shaky, and you can't see much of what's going on. And then they'll say, oh, I, I risked my life for this video. What do you mm -hmm. think? Mm -hmm. And they're like, uh, all right. All right, what we need to do is help you so that next time you risk your life, because I know you're going to do it, you know, because you're dedicated, mm -hmm. that you don't shake like crazy and get only pictures of tops of trees. You know, mm -hmm. like we, if you're going to risk your life, let's, let's make it, dare I say, somewhat more worth it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that mm -hmm. it's a message that people could, could process. And then there's other things, you know, we, and you get into that discussion. You have to learn about culture to some extent. But how do you talk to a general who thinks that reporters shouldn't ask nosy questions? Mm -hmm. You know, are there ways? Uh, and we, we talk about getting, you know, a little more like friends with your sources mm -hmm. and, and, and choosing the right time to ask the more difficult question. And it's, it's all very basic journalism skills which you either learn with experience or maybe somebody can, can show you. I mean, it's, it's either or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Xavi, do you also have, um, uh, I mean, uh, Mark is talking about uh, hierarchy also uh, <laughs> in, in, in uh, working with um, the rebels. Uh, and is there something with hierarchy in, in your project in, in Mexico that... Uh, makes things more difficult or even more easy or uh, or does it is there no such a thing as hierarchy and and is there far more uh, really communal uh, well, sense officially there are no hierarchies i mean you have places of power which rotate so in theory there is no possibility to cre to create a hierarchy unofficially you always have different powers in a community so you can have one family, you can have a group of people, you can have certain people that tend to put pressure on you, for you or against you. And I mean, the world is the same. I mean, people are the same everywhere. You will <laughs> never find a single mm, community which yeah. agree with you 100%. And even if you do, there's always going to be someone who tries to make his own personal business out of it. I mean, with us, it happened a lot that... Some people in the village spread around misinformation about what we're doing and the fact that the equipment we're using is not uh, up to date and we're basically selling them obsolete crap. Is that, but why is that? Is that because they because you are new into the community or no, um, we found out. We investigated a bit and there is one guy who is basically making secret deals or is trying to make a secret deal with the actual big telco. And so he's trying to push us out. Of course, this doesn't work because the network we have is already running and the big telco doesn't really want to invest money in it. But this guy is still thinking... You see, that's the problem. Even if you're working in indigenous communities which keep the same mentality they had since hundreds of years, the new way of thinking, the colonialism of making business out of everything, making your own personal interest above the general interest of the society, it's something that already got there, and you can see it. Oaxaca is probably one of the few places left in the world where you can still count on um, a community as a whole 
But you always have to keep in mind that even in a community which is very, I don't know, tightly connected, you still have people that want to make their own business out of it. Mm -hmm. And it's the poorest state in Mexico and in one of the poorest in Latin America. So at one point you understand them, the fact that if they had the opportunity to make some money for them and for their family, even going above the, in the, the, the bigger interest, mm -hmm. they will do that. And I cannot blame them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the same everywhere. Yeah. Well, now we have such a nice moment to <laughs> put some music, I think. <laughs> Do we have anything Mexican? Hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love the expression from behind the, the board. Technical person. <laughs> Let, let's just give him a. a that was a technical look for. I'm not sure where the Mexican music is, but. Uh, <laughs> I have some music ready for you guys, but it's absolutely not Mexican at all. <laughs> It's an Austrian waltz. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Prism, watching your every move. Dutch police, wiretapping over 26,000 times. A hacking plan to break into your computer and alter your data or even destroy it. This is Omroep. We love to talk about it. Because Omroep is pessimistic where we can and optimistic where we must. 104.7 FM And are we back again? Yes. Whoops, we are back again. I'm sorry for uh, the dead air, but uh, here we are again, back to uh, Hacker Public Radio at home on uh, 104.7 FM. Uh, we're here, uh, I have uh, Cecile with me, who's playing the role of a co-host, uh, which I'm very grateful for. And we have, uh, to my left, we have Chabi of uh, Rinsnomatica. And, uh, we have Omatica. I'm sorry? It's not Nomatica, it's Omatica. Oh, <laughs> it's all Martica. Yeah. That's happy. Okay, great. And we had Bicycle Mark with us a moment ago, but he had to go because he had some heralding uh, work to do. So uh, we had to excuse him. Okay, so uh, Chabi, um, we were talking about uh, the, the the project, and uh, you talked about uh, what. Uh, the the B open bts the software that you used could you perhaps say something more about that yeah okay basically open bts we're still talking about uh, chabi's project in oaxaca yeah mexico basically open bts it's a software platform which allow you to set up your own gsm cell with very little money in the cheapest option with less than a thousand euro you can actually set up a small cell yourself the idea the The, the revolution in GSM technology is the fact that we are not forced to use telecommunication, telco grade stuff. I mean, we can actually build our own, our own things. And it works in this way because it's based on the concept of... Oops. Ah, yeah, see? Ah, okay. Mm. We had a little hum, we had a little interruption, let's continue. Yeah, the idea it's called SDR, it's not a new concept, but basically means that the entire modulation, so the entire 
system of generating a digital signal and then creating all the framing and all the technical details, blah, blah, blah. It's all done in software. The transmitter itself only take a signal, convert it into... Um, waves in the air and mm -hmm. that's it. Then you need to amplify it and 90% of the job is done by a normal computer. Yeah, SDR being software defined radio, right? Exactly. And what, for, what kind of hardware do you need in order to uh, link up such a village? I mean, are we talking like uh, quad-core uh, multi-CPU systems or no. is this like the old Pentium 2 you have in your back uh, in your attic? Uh, it's something in the middle and it's a core Two duo, I think, with one gig of RAM, and that's it. And it easily handles 600 users at the moment. And the new transmitter, which we are receiving, has exactly the same motherboard and should handle up to a thousand users with no problems, and up to 30 something concurrent calls. So, yeah, that's that's main thing. I mean, doing something like this four or five years ago could have been probably impossible because we don't have the knowledge about telco equipment. I mean, I don't have it and I know very few people that work in it professionally and the cost will be completely prohibitive. While nowadays we have small cost and the fact that the entire box is basically Linux. So it's the same thing we have been whole hacking on for years. It's just one software running on a Linux box which makes it so much easier. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, so you're basically putting up a network for uh, 1,000 euros together. No, no. The problem is at the moment the cost is high because we didn't assemble the box ourselves. We just got the entire package fully ready, installed, just plug it in and it kind of worked. Well, we had to fix some things, but it was quite easy. In the future we want to move more and more of the um, finding parts, assembling it, testing it, and doing it ourselves so we could reduce the price. The actual equipment which is working now costs $15,000, which is still around one-tenth of the cost of a normal uh, telephone cell. So we already re reduced it to price which is acceptable for a community of 2,000 people, we want to reduce it down to four, or $5,000 so we can actually propose it to villages that are really, really small and don't have that many resources. Yes, and you can basically do that all by using Moore's Law, right? Using more? Moore's Law. Computers get twice as fast in about 18 months of time. Yeah, y you see, that's the point. Nowadays, computers are so fast that we don't even need to use the latest technology. We are using computers that are two, three years old and they're working perfectly fine and we pay the entire motherboard, CPU and all less than 100 euro. The main problem we have, and if someone is listening and want to help out, it would be really handy, we are missing some radio frequency engineer. The software part, I can handle it. The Assembly part, I can handle it, but to actually tune the antennas, to cut the cables properly, to do all the really radio stuff, we are missing a bit of knowledge. Mm, because you, you told something that was quite funny about the antenna. Okay. <laughs> the antenna we have now, 
we call it an antenna, but it's a hack. It's a huge hack. It's basically a one pole of 10 meters of aluminum with a diameter of, I don't know, six, seven centimeters. We're actually two pieces soldered together, but when we try to pull it up the first time, the first two meters completely bent, and we had to cut it off, <laughs> shorten it a bit, put it back together, and it's now kept in place with seven tensors made of metal wire, which is the duct tape equivalent in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Duct tapes. Good yeah. everywhere. <laughs> and one time the antenna already fell, they put it back, and now it's stable in place with double metal wire. <laughs> which, according to them, it's perfect, and it will keep it stable forever. Yeah. Well, you know, you have to adapt. You're in Mexico. You cannot set your standards the same way you will do things in Europe. You have to be more inventive uh, because you have like uh, you have less um, possibilities to have all the material you just could yes. buy. Or yes. Whatever. Yeah. On the other side, Mexican people are fantastic because mm. they are completely careless about their own lives. So, I mean, I've seen people walking and um, climbing 10, 15 meters on antennas without any harness, without any protection, mm -hmm. just like. Are you sure you want to do that? Yeah, yeah, no te preocupe. And in that sense, they don't make that many problems, really. Everything can be done. Mm -hmm. Even the impossible sometimes. But until now, everybody still survives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No accident, nothing. We are all alive and well. Yeah. I use an harness when I climb on the antennas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Justo. Yeah. Okay. Um. What else? Um, if someone wants to know more about this project, they can always pass by the Italian embassy, which is in the most noisy part of the camp. I will be there. And you can also buy t-shirts, you can drink The noisy some... rebel camp square. Exactly. <laughs> We're in front of the noisy square. We are the noisy Italians. <laughs> Where there was no discussion about the sponsorship of this conference. No such discussion. Okay, um, let's see. What will be the next program? Uh, is anybody um, aware of what... Uh I guess it will be Breno. Ah. Okay. Um, uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, what happens uh, after, you've, after you've been there, been there and brought the stuff and set up the network and it is it uh, it gets taken over by the local people and have you been there uh, in a later stage after they have controlled uh, the system themselves for a while yeah 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 we actually went there already five six times by now but yeah we're basically friends by now we go back and forth a lot What we found out is that they use the telephone a lot. I mean, they make, on average, 4,000 calls per day. And they are, what, less than 600 users, so on average they call at least five times a day. They find it really, really useful, especially for small communication. But how they're going to handle it in the future and what are going to be the actual consequences for the society as a whole, we don't know yet. We think that it's a positive improvement and they were the first to actually 
request that. I mean, we didn't force anything. We made the proposal and they accepted it, but there is no... We want to avoid the approach many NGOs and groups have, which is we go to a place and we tell them that it will be nice to do that, and mm. we do it, and that's it. Our approach is more a dialogue, as in we want, we would like to do this, but we understand that you have different requirements, or maybe what we think that you could do with that, it's completely different from, from what you think it could be useful. So it's going to be very interesting in the next one, two years to see yes. if it if we can really make a difference, and if this difference is positive or negative, or if we just created another monster full of teenagers texting each other. <laughs> I still, I still uh, don't get, how, how did you end up at, at exactly that place? Because you had plans for, like, I don't know, uh, you, ah, you would, to totally you would have started in, 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 in Central America, and you would be away for a year, and you would have sort of traveled the whole South of America or something. There was... Yeah, but my but you trip never got out of Mexico. <laughs> yes, I never got out of Mexico. The southern place I got was Oaxaca. No, it <laughs> happened that I've been to the um, Mexican Hack Meeting, which is the equivalent of the home camp, but it's done every year and it's a bit more, I don't know, on the cheap side. But basically, how big is that? Uh, are there many people? Hundred something people mm -hmm. from whole Mexico or? Mm, yeah, well, because Mexico, of course, has a has also a particular story of uh, the digitalization, use of computers, and we saw that in the first with the Zapatero movement, with uh, Subcomandante Marcos, and blah blah blah. No, that, so there is a specific. There has been some sort of uh, very. Um, they have been ahead very much uh, on on using uh, the internet. Uh, for their uh, popular movements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is quite, quite a big support in it. What is constantly lacking in the Mexican part is like everywhere. You have tons of people who want to do a lots of projects, but we don't have, they don't have that many technicians, and that always creates a chain of dependency between the people who want to do stuff and the people who support them. Mm -hmm. But... What, the the, the the hackers meeting in Mexico does uh, are there also people from the zapateros involved or zapatistas Zapatero, zapatistas sorry yeah well officially yes and no I don't want to talk much about it because it's a very big topic big and topic. Okay. not yeah. enough time yeah okay but I think, uh, yeah. if someone wants to continue the discussion offline, I'll be around the camp for the next two days. And you can see me around. I've read on my T-shirt. The, the Mexican T-shirt. Yes. Buy Mexican T-shirts. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All BinRef projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.